Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Tasha Devon. Tasha Devon is running for the congressional seat in the 9th District of Virginia against opponent Morgan Griffith. I had interviewed her back in July when she announced her candidacy and had extended an interview to Morgan Griffith uh, for equal time. He didn't respond to that. And now, related to these interviews just before the election, he declined to be interviewed by me, but did agree to an interview uh, with a substitute interviewer, which was conducted by David St. Clair. All of these interviews are available at wehcfm.com on the archive podcast site, or just by Googling WEHC This Conversation. So I wanted to get all that out there and thank you, Tasha Devon, for being with me today. No, thank you for having me, Teresa. Uh, how's your campaign been going? What has it been like? It's been going good. It's been exciting. It has been what we wanted it to be, um, getting to the people, meeting people where they're at. Uh, we've got young folks that are excited. We've got independents that are excited. We've got people who didn't vote before. And, you know, we've even got some leaning Republicans that are excited about this candidacy. So I'm I'm very, very um, proud of what we've done so far. Tasha, the last time that I interviewed, I asked you if you really thought you had a snowball's chance in Hades for win- mm-hmm. winning. <laughs> and uh, you were very optimistic. And you sound, of course, optimistic now. And I imagine that all of that is very true. But the facts are you are running as a Democrat and you are in a Republican district. I've heard it described not just as red, but as blood red. <laughs> what do you think your chances are? I think that we can never close the door on what voters will do um, when they find themselves excited and reflected in a candidate that's willing to work on kitchen table issues and values that align with theirs. Um, I know it's an uphill battle, but that's kind of been the battles I've always fought is against the odds and against the statistics. And I have made it this far. Um, So that's why I'm optimistic. So I think um, you can't you can't ever count an underdog out. (laughs) You know, when you have political beliefs and passions that you may not even think you can win, but you think you can do something rather than sitting back and doing nothing. Absolutely. And I think a big part of what we are proud of and what we've done also in this campaign is just getting people involved in the process, getting people to talk to each other across the aisle, um, bringing up issues, again, those kitchen table issues that we're letting people have conversations that say, you know, you're more aligned when it comes to what we're concerned about and what keeps us up at night than we are divided. So I think that that is momentum that we have built and what that really turns out to look like and be we'll know we'll know more on November the 8th. You mentioned issues and that's a segue to where I need to go but first of all I just want to see if I can get some more concrete image picture of just the kind of work you've been doing. You I know you've had to travel the district is huge how many places have you gone what kind of people have invited you to talk to them? So I have traveled over 12,000 miles right now. We know that the district is over 9,000 square miles. So we have been crisscrossing, again, meeting people where they're at. And that has been at festivals, at recovery fests, at economic forums, at barbecues. So we have been doing a lot of, of course, firing up the base and going to Democratic committees and making sure that people know who I am and getting my name out there. But we have also 
blended in some of the like nonprofit work that I had done before with mutual aid. So I visited mutual aid stores in Pulaski and in Rocky Mount. I have participated in the NAACP forum and I have gone to faith-based communities as well. You know, historically black churches, as well as other faith-based places that have held their own community forum. So I have been invited by different manners of folks I've been to at the beginning of the candidacy. I went to a couple of substance abuse disorder conferences, for not necessarily forums, but more like a roundtable discussions. So I really just kind of been working with businesses, professionals, community leaders, faith leaders, and again, trying to fire up the base. 12,000 miles. And I suppose that's not tax deductible mileage, or is it? (laughs) No, it is not. It is not. (laughs) And one other thing that I wanted to follow up on, I don't know what a mutual aid store is. Okay. So the concept of mutual aid um, is really just providing whatever the community feels is a need at the moment based on what that community is. And it means that you do not have to prove that you have a need. You just need to say it. So it looks different. Mutual aid can look different in different places. So in my community, what we do in response to food insecurity and um, food deserts is we give out a hot meal once a month, as well as a grocery distribution. In Pulaski, they have a free store. So that has been someone who is able to purchase a building and supply it with clothes, shoes, toys, even some resources um, as to, you know, how you can apply for food stamps and things like that. So in Pulaski, they have that free store. In Rocky Mount, they no longer have this mutual aid, uh, but they were doing more letting like the houseless come and they had a shower and they had beds and they also had a kitchen. Um, So it looks different. Um, in different communities, but basically the idea of mutual aid is, you know, filling in the gaps that we have in our communities where people are suffering. Tasha, you mentioned uh, the NAACP. You're not Black as far as I know, but do you consider yourself a person of color? And forgive the question, it should be irrelevant. Yeah, no, I totally understand. And I think that it's good that we celebrate our diversity as well. And hopefully we do get to a point where these labels won't matter. Um, I am Comanche. Um, I am I am not um, Black, but I also do identify as a woman of color, not necessarily always because that I have identified that way, but that's how society will identify me. I think you will hear Barack Obama had talked about this at one point because I'm also half white. Um, so a lot of times people will go ahead and peg you with the minority um, aspect that you have. Um, so I'm Comanche. I am proud of it. And um, I also make sure I reach out to other minority groups. Well, thank you for that answer. But I wanted to ask you also about media coverage. To be honest, I've seen very little uh, coverage. I get the daily newspaper and I get Cardinal News. That's an online news source. And and I have seen very little. Have you tried to reach out to media? What kind of response have you gotten from the media? Yeah, actually, the media has really picked up here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we did the interview with WSET out of Lynchburg. We have done um, the ABC interview that is going to be out of the Roanoke area. Cardinal News is later today, actually. Um, so we have some things that have gone out there. The Coalfield just yesterday put out candidate profiles, which is our local paper down here. So it it, it is picking up. Well, it's about darn time. Uh, it seems like our media needs to pay more attention to the local campaigns, but that's a whole other issue. 
the issue that we were headed to is what are the issues to you? What are the big issues on which you feel like you have strength in this campaign? The kitchen table issues, again, is something that I hear time and time again from the people that I talk to on the ground. Um, national issues are definitely conversation pieces, but what pe- keep people up at night are the roof over the head, the food on their table, and what their future like looks like. So I would say that the youth, our youth is leaving in astronomical numbers. They don't feel like they have a future here. They don't feel like they want to raise families here. And it looks like it's very hard for them to stay. So that is the utmost thing that I hear across this district is we got to keep our we got to keep our kids home and how we're going to do that. Well, and that is to a great deal an economic question, and that's the issue. What Republicans are saying and and seem to have the high ground on is blaming gas prices, high gas prices on Biden and saying that there's too much government spending. What do you how do you respond to that? Well, I would say that there were already economic issues that we were dealing with before we went into the pandemic, before we're looking at inflation, uh, before we're looking at these high prices of food and drugs. I would say that that is something that we we should have been addressing from the beginning and that we need to continue to address, that we are living on poverty wages. We are living in an area that does not have enough diversity of job opportunities. And we also don't have the transportation infrastructure for people to get to these jobs. And we also don't have the housing, the affordable housing accessibility for some of these houses. We got a new, you know, we have Bristol that has the new casino that's opening. And I know a lot of folks that are having a hard time finding a place to stay close to Bristol so they can have that job. So I would say that it's as far as our spending, I would say it's where we're spending that money at. And we should have been investing in rural communities and in these situations before there was such a threat of inflation. And I would also say, you know, not at the federal level, but at the state level, you know, our current administration refused to pass any price gouging legislation when we were going when we were going through all of these high fuel prices and fuel costs. So I think that there are levers and mechanisms that we could be putting in place that would ease the working class. Specifically, what in the world could you do? Sure, we need jobs and sure the wages are low. And yes, the big companies have gouged prices. You know, it's like the buck stops with who's at the top. And what would you do if elected? I would definitely work on a federal minimum wage raise. And I would also work on trying to create a rural rural package legislation that deals with the housing and Fortunately, you know, we have the Infrastructure Act that passed. So we're getting roads and bridges that are built. uh, But I would also want to make sure that in Virginia, we're looking at the flood preparedness that we're having, because it's not just an issue in Hampton Roads or like we saw in Buchanan County. This is going to be an issue across Virginia. So we need to be prepared for those type of things. And I think there's a way to package this as a just transition, as a way that we are, again, offering those diverse jobs, but also making sure we're passing like the PRO Act. Um, because we need our workers' rights to unionize and our right to organize, to demand those living wages, to make sure it's a safe environment, to have those benefits and pensions. So I think if we have the infrastructure, 
And then we have the job opportunities that are the good jobs with the guaranteed pay. And then we are also offering more transportation opportunities. I think those three things working in tandem uh, would be a good first start. And I would love to work on that. What other issues are top of mind when voters are talking to you besides the kitchen table issues? Well, right now what I'm hearing, um, and I am just now really kind of hearing this from folks, is, is crime. There's a a wave of of crime that people are concerned about across a district. And that is related also to our substance abuse disorder, to our mental health facilities, and also again to poverty and all of that entails. And I would also just like to note that, you know, we have some of the highest rates of domestic abuse in our district, and we have issues with sex trafficking and child abuse. So I think there are many things that we should be working on to strengthen our families, whatever that family looks like. And The legislations that we could be passing again are like the Violence Against Women's Act, the how, you know, making sure that we're increasing housing affordability and and accessibility. I would say another thing would just be affordability across the board, you know, affordability for college, affordability to go to trade schools, affordability to get around this transportation issue keeps coming up. It doesn't seem to matter what angle we're looking at. People cannot get to the doctor, get to their job, uh, get to recreation. You mentioned getting to the doctor. So let's talk about healthcare as another issue. What would you have to say about healthcare? I would say that we have got to work better with the providers and with the insurance folks and how we're going to get the affordability for people and again the access for people. We've got to protect our Medicaid and our Medicare and, we, and we've got to expand that. I think we have seen the amount of care that has increased since we had, you know, the state expansion of of those services. And that is the main thing that people in this district feel like they have not had a voice in is the healthcare options. Um, We like to say that we get the crumbs of the crumbs of the crumbs and we don't have enough facilities. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough doctors. Um, And then we don't have enough specialty folks. So, you know, we have to drive two hours away to get to a place that is specific to our needs. And of course, drug prices are something that I think that the federal government should be working on. Say a little bit more about that, if you would. What should the government be doing? I think there's got to be a way that we can give, again, yeah, people the ability to negotiate for themselves. I would like to see some type of program for folks who live in rural communities, of course, or who live under the poverty level that have, you know, more access in their communities, not just as individuals or as families, but you could you could argue that in the ninth district, you know, that we have an income level, you know, for an average person that's under 40,000 and for a family that's under 60,000. And there has to be a way that we can subsidize the way that care is given in rural communities. Let me interrupt just for a second to remind listeners who might just be tuning in that this is this conversation. I'm Teresa Keller. My guest today is Tasha Devon, candidate for the ninth congressional seat in Virginia in the upcoming November the 8th election, which is speeding toward us. Tasha Devon, are there issues where you feel like that with public opinion, you have the upper hand in this campaign? Oh, the upper hand. That's a good question. I think part of what we've 
done in this campaign is that we, you know, we've talked about some of these national issues, but I think not necessarily the upper hand, but what I've been able to do is just offer new perspectives and a new framework when it comes to issues such as the Second Amendment or abortion rights. We have to come at these issues, not from just the two sides that we keep hearing, you know, in the media and in the newspaper, but, you know, as an Indigenous person, I can tell you that I definitely think that, you know, the Second Amendment is important and that I know, you know, we grow up with the stories of wounded knee. So being able to protect your family, your land and your future is really important. You talked about your Comanche heritage and you're talking about the Second Amendment. You said that you grew up with the story of wounded knee. Would you tell us what that story is and how that connects to your thinking about the Second Amendment? Yeah, I can definitely do that. So wounded knee was a time in our history where the Oglasu were asked to surrender their arms to the U.S. government and that in return, you know, there would be a treaty signed. But what ended up happening is that the Army, United States Army, 7th Cavalry, went in and slaughtered 300 of the Lakota people um, as well. So that has been the story that we have been passed down with that, you know, that we were ready to fight and then we gave up our arms and then our women and our children were massacred. And even though I'm not Lakota and I'm not Sioux, we tell these stories as a group um, because we, you know, we recognize our differences as tribes, but our stories are very much um, entangled together. So that is why I support the Second Amendment, because we should always be able to protect our land and our people in our home. Also, we can be working on the fact that in t- since, 2020, since 2020, that the highest rate of concern for children dying is firearms. We need to be addressing that because that's our children. This is crimes against our children and abuse and violence against our children. And we have to be working on those things as well. As far again, yeah, as, as the abortion issue, it's really something that I have been talking about as, of course, that that choice is always between a per, any person, anybody's healthcare choice is between them, their doctor, and their God. But also, before we ta- start talking about legislating people's bodies, are we doing enough to address some of the other core and systemic econo- economic issues that can contribute to the reasonings that people seek abortions, um, such as equal pay for women, again, violence against women and domestic abuse, Healthcare um, is still for women um, needs a lot of investment. Uh, you know, OBGYN practices, prenatal, postpartum, all of these things, as well as childcare accessibility and affordability. Um, and again, housing. This housing thing keeps coming up again across the board, and access and affordability for that. So I keep saying, you know, we are we working hard enough to address these things. So I would say I don't necessarily have an upper hand um, on any real issue because this is a tough district that has some really um, specific views about things. But what I think I have been able to do is just open up a conversation space and reframe it from different perspectives. It may be different in this district, the 9th Congressional District, but to be honest, I'm surprised you didn't come out firing on the abortion issue because the most recent news on that front with Republicans is that Dr. Oz, the Republican running for Senate in a debate, said something about that 
doctors, the women, the religious leaders, and local political leaders should be involved in a decision about abortion. And in fact, what we're really talking about is government-forced birth, that the policy uh, that is now in place under the new Supreme Court decision is that the government tells you uh, that you have to have your child if you get pregnant. So despite all those other issues that you brought up, if all that was in a perfect world, there mm. would still be unwanted pregnancies. Is it touchy for you to talk about that issue? No, it's not. I think, you know, I've made my stance pretty clear on that, that I would at a federal level want, you know, uh, Roe v. Wade to be codified. And I think most Americans can get behind the restrictions that are in that legislation. But the reason why you haven't seen, um, I mean, I have participated um, just last night in, you know, in a forum about the Dobbs decision, you know, I've talked about it a few times, but the reason why you don't see me fire breathing about it is because when I'm talking to constituents, what's important are those kitchen table issues. What they're worried about is, again, the roof over the head, the food on their table and how they're going to get to their job. So I am reflecting what I'm hearing on the campaign trail. And that's what I would hope I could continue to do. Because yes, these things are important and we have to hold the line. And I think that most women and also men, and again, this is not just a woman's issue, this is a family issue, um, know where I stand on that. But I'm wondering if your constituents are talking at all about climate change with the recent flooding in Hurley and Buchanan County and scientists saying that these increasingly strong devastating storms are a result of climate change. Are your constituents showing any concern about climate change? Absolutely. I think for the flooding that happened around in Buchanan County, it's more of framed around best practices and kind of what happened and how we got here. But I can tell you that our youth is definitely talking about environment and protecting our air, protecting our water, and making sure that we have clean, healthy communities going forward. So I can tell you almost anybody under the age of 35, that's one of their top three concerns. And they're very passionate about it. And they have very solid views on how they feel about it. I would say, you know, as you get a little bit older to people who are a little bit older, they recognize that that, that it's a problem, that's an issue, but they aren't always, they're not always really secure in how we should go forward. Well, and those of us who are older figure we're going to die before the worst of it happens. I guess that's another reason for the younger people to be more concerned. You said that climate change is one of the top three concerns of young people. What are the other ones? It would be affordability um, and the what, what the future looks like here. So housing and transportation, they seem to really want to, you know, they can't afford vehicles, they can't afford the gas, they need more public transit, they need more rail, they need more options. Um, they also, again, want the, the diversity of jobs. They, you know, some people don't want to go to college, they want more trade schools, or the affordability of college. So free community college. And we have a community college in the Richlands area that had just, you know, opened this spring with having student housing at a community college. And those kids were very excited in talking about how we could model that across the state, how they're going to build their future, how they're going to get back and forth to their work, where are they going to live, and what does their environment look like around them? We didn't talk about energy, and uh, Morgan Griffith was 
proclaiming his excitement about the possibility of developing nuclear energy on reclaimed mine sites in the coal field area. What are your philosophies, positions on energy? Coal, nuclear, wind and solar? Well, I think that we have to have a myriad of options. I think that we can find ways to burn fossil fuel energies in a more clean way. I think that we haven't moved in a space where we can completely cut that off, that we have to find ways to work with that industry better. Um, but also we have to build the future. You know, this is a global shift that we're getting to renewables and we're using solar and we're using wind and we're using um, hydro. And fossil fuels is a limited resource, right? At some point that's going to run out. At some point we will not have that. So we need to be thinking eight, seven, you know, seven, eight generations ahead of time. And as far as putting a nuclear site in Southwest Virginia, we can do better than that. I mean, Northern Virginia is going to get an Amazon, is going to get like an Amazon factory. They're going to get, you know, factories for making these semiconductors. But in a place that's already dealing with the aftermath of companies, of extraction companies who did not follow best practices. And now we have seen flooding in our communities with people who, have a hard time rebuilding. I mean, there's a small community that may, in right over across the state line in Eastern Kentucky that may never come back because of this flooding. So I think we can do better. I think that we have to, of course, come at it as a yes and approach that, yes, we need to be shifting and phasing away from fossil fuels, but also strengthening our ability to use that energy cleanly and efficiently while protecting our workers. But there is a transitioning happen and we need to be looking towards the future. I mean, we've been talking about renewables since like the 1970s. And had we been on this route before, we would not be looking at such disparities that we have now. Tasha, our time is running out. I should say Ms. Devon, but uh, our time is running out. And anything else that you would like to add, your elevator speech, your any other issues that we missed for final comments? I would just say that, you know, this is an opportunity for us as the middle class and the working class to really have a vote and a voice in Washington through a representative like myself. I live in this district. I work in this district. Um, I do community volunteering in this district. And my tagline is bringing your voice to Washington, because I really do believe that if we are offering people the seat at the table, if we're making sure that we're including our communities at the most basic level in our decision-making processes. We're going to move forward in ways that can only be productive, especially in rural communities. So I would say if we want our youth also to have hope in the future, that this is our chance. This is our time. This is our chance to show Virginia that the ninth district is ready for change and that we're ready to move forward. And I hope um, that people see themselves as, as, see themselves in me as a candidate, because that's how they will know that I will continue to fight for Tasha Devon, candidate for the 9th District Virginia Congressional seat. The election is November the 8th. And thank you, Tasha, for being with us. And thanks to the listeners for tuning in. This interview can be heard again at the podcast site, wehcfm.com, and you'll see a link to podcasts. Or you can just go to WEHC, This Conversation, in your search engine, and these interviews should come up uh, with Tasha and with Congressman Griffith. And again, the election is Tuesday, November the 8th. Thank you again, Tasha, for being with us.
Thank you, Teresa.